This is Jim Mosley, your host on the Bible History Guy radio broadcast, sponsored by Winterwood Creative. We're dedicated to turning doubt into Christian faith through facts. So if you have questions about God or the Bible that you would like answered, you can reach me through our website, www.thebiblehistoryguy.com. Or you can email me directly at jim at thebiblehistoryguy.com. That's jim at thebiblehistoryguy.com. Today's broadcast comes from my latest book, The Biographies of Jesus' Apostles. Most readers of the Bible have only a vague notion of who Jesus' apostles were, how they were related to each other, and what exactly they did. This book takes readers alongside the apostles, reveals the world through their eyes, and accurately retraces every known step of their lives. Sermons and books on the apostles frequently refer to them as uneducated tradesmen, ordinary men, poor people. Probably the verse that chiefly leads to this conclusion is Acts 4.13. Now when they, that is the Sanhedrin, saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Now in this passage, the Greek word for uneducated means unlettered. But three of the twelve apostles, Matthew, John, and Peter, wrote some of the world's all-time best-selling literature. They were, therefore, much more lettered than the snobbish Sanhedrin, that is the Jewish council, who felt that only people who had studied under them and had accepted the same twisted teachings of scripture that they professed were educated. But in fact, the scholarship of the first century Jewish leadership was wobbly at best and false at worst. As just one of many examples, the Jewish elite did not think that any prophet could come from Galilee. That's according to John 7, 5, 2, whereas Jonah did 2 Kings 14, 25. What affronted the Jewish leaders was that these so-called unlettered men were so bold. Sure, the apostles weren't rabbis, but they had built businesses, had established respectable positions in society, and they spoke more persuasively than any group of men in history. They lacked the trappings of the Jewish rulers, but they had more influence, and it exasperated the upper class. Well, the apostles were a lot more than just literate. Jesus called them scribes who had been trained for the kingdom of heaven, like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Matthew thirteen fifty two. Now, it would be pretty surprising if the apostles who gave up their former lives to join Jesus in full-time ministry ignored this commission by Jesus, the commission of being scribes, and failed to take notes during Jesus' ministry. Consider this, for example. Matthew wasn't present at the Sermon on the Mount, yet only Matthew recorded the Sermon on the Mount. Now, either Jesus or the only other disciples present, who were Peter, James, and John, gave Matthew the text, or the Holy Spirit gave the entire text to Matthew. Now, considering the majesty, the beauty, and the centrality of the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, it's kind of hard to believe that the three apostles who were there listening to it, Peter, James, and John, didn't say to each other, is one of you getting this down? And in case you think it would have been impossible for them to take the words down at the time that they heard the words, given the primitiveness of the writing instruments of the first century. Think about this. Jesus' ministry 
lasted 1,350 days, spanning five calendar years from 8029 to 8033, 50 calendar months, and 44.36 months, calculated as being 30.5 days for an average month. The four Gospels, which are histories of what Jesus did during that ministry time, have gaps in their narratives. And in those gaps, Jesus simply disappears from the pages of history. The gaps total 770 days, which is about two years. And those gaps represent 57% of Jesus' total ministry time. No wonder John wrote, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. That's John 20, 30. And he also wrote, there are many more things that Jesus did. If all of them were written down, I suppose that not even the world itself would have space for the books that would be written. John 21, 25. So what did Jesus and the disciples do in this private time? Well, probably Jesus rehearsed his disciples in all his teaching that they, as scribes, wrote in their notes. And the disciples probably used that private time to check their notes with Jesus for accuracy. So when Jesus ascended and the disciples became apostles, that is, ambassadors, they would have been well-equipped with sermon notes that would empower them to take the gospel to all nations, just as the Great Commission required. And when Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John composed their gospels, it's also plausible that they would have had access to the sermon notes of all the other apostles, because the other apostles would doubtless have been very happy to share with them their notes for the purpose of creating a verified account of Jesus and his ministry. So we have extant proof that the apostles were far from illiterate, the only statement that supports their being uneducated is the snobbish slur by the ruling class of first century Jerusalem. And there is one other point to consider. In a multilingual society like first century Judea, the apostles had to speak Aramaic as the common language of the streets, Greek as the language of law and commerce, because even in the Roman province of Judea, Latin was seldom spoken in the East. And Hebrew, because that would be the ecclesiastical language. For example, when you went to synagogue, you would probably hear messages in Hebrew, just as Catholics up until recently would hear Latin when they went to Mass. So the Twelve Apostles were conversant, if not fluent, in at least three languages, hardly an indication of being uneducated. Now, how about the poverty of the disciples? Well, Matthew 19.27 says that Peter said to Jesus, See, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Well, if the disciples had been poor in the first place, leaving everything to follow Jesus would have had very little merit. In Acts 3.6, Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now, this makes it sound like Peter was broke, but maybe he simply meant he had no cash on hand. Or maybe he was simply making the point that what he was about to give through the power of Christ had, as Job 28.18 says, a price above pearls. In the third year of Jesus' ministry, 32 AD, a curious event occurred regarding the payment of the tax required to support the Jerusalem temple. That account is in Matthew 17, 24 through 27. It goes like this. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? 
He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, From others, Jesus said to him, Then their sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Now, this story does not necessarily imply that Peter lacked the money to pay the tax for himself or even for Jesus. What it implies is that Jesus, as the true king of creation and lord of the temple, was not subject to the tax, nor was Jesus' chosen disciple, Peter. Poignantly, Jesus didn't ask Peter to take money out of the disciples' money bag, which they had, John 13, 29, to pay the tax. Jesus sent Peter to catch a fish, where he found coins enough to pay for both Jesus and himself. Jesus produced the money from a supernatural source, emphasizing, just like when he fed the 5,000, fed the 4,000, that he was sovereign over all resources. After Jesus' ascension, the apostles all traveled hundreds, and some traveled thousands of miles, proclaiming the gospel, and this cost a lot of money. As the gospel spread, the apostles probably could have counted on donations from an increasing number of believers, but at the start, they must have relied on their own means. And traveling was probably relatively more expensive in those days than it is today. As Margaret Thatcher once said, the Good Samaritan could not have been the Good Samaritan if he had not had some money in his purse. So most likely, the disciples were rather well off. Peter and Andrew were business partners of James and John. James and John, under the supervision of their father Zebedee, ran a fishing business wealthy enough to employ multiple hired men. That's in Mark 1, 19-20. John apparently had a house in Jerusalem as well as in Galilee because when Jesus from the cross consigned Mary, his mother, to John's care, the Bible says that John took Mary into his house at that same hour. That would be impossible if John's only house were in Galilee since John could not have transported Mary from Jerusalem to Galilee in one hour. Now, it's possible the Bible was using the word house figuratively, meaning that John took Mary into his household that very hour. But here's another piece of evidence suggesting that John owned a house in Jerusalem. When Nicodemus secretly met Jesus in John chapter 3, Jesus didn't have a house. He said that birds had nests and foxes had dens, but the Son of Man had no place to lay his head. And since Nicodemus came to Jesus and not the other way around, the place cannot have been Nicodemus' house. The meeting was private, so presumably Nicodemus and Jesus were alone, except for the only gospel writer who recorded that meeting, John the Apostle. So whose house were they in? Probably John's. Now this doesn't prove that John owned a house in Jerusalem, but together with the statement about his taking Mary into his house, it does suggest it. And if so, John was a man of means. And yet another clue supports this. When Peter was unable to enter the building where the Jewish leaders were trying Jesus on the night before the crucifixion, John was able to gain entry for Peter because John was known to the high priest, John 18, 15 through 16. If John, an ally of Jesus, whom Ananias, the high priest, hated, could still call in a high priestly favor, out of all favors, that of giving a pass to Jesus' chief disciple, who had just cut off the ear of the high priest's servant Malchus in the Garden of Gethsemane, John must have been a man of influence. Now, how do you get to have influence with a high priest? Be a major donor. Another clue to the wealth of the apostles is that Andrew and John were disciples of John the Baptist before they were disciples of Jesus. To have the leisure to become disciples of the radical Nazarite cousin of Jesus, they couldn't have been just subsistence fishermen. They had to have the means to afford some leisure. 
Matthew, of course, was a tax collector, and as such, he was flat-out wealthy as well as educated. But the others were probably well-off too when Jesus said that it was easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to pass into heaven. The disciples let out a yelp of protest. Who could be saved, they asked. Well, if they'd consider themselves poor, they wouldn't have asked that question. And the descriptions in the Bible of the home of Peter and Andrew suggest that it was a very large house, not a poor fisherman's shack. So if the disciples were rich or at least comfortably financially when they began to follow Jesus, their faith is more remarkable, not less. They left comfort behind to store up their treasure in heaven. This is Jim, the Bible History Guy, and you've been listening to material from my latest book, The Biographies of Jesus' Apostles, Ambassadors in Chains. Imprisoned in Nero's Rome, Paul wrote, I am an ambassador in chains. Well, apostle means ambassador, and these long-suffering ambassadors of Christ bore the gospel over tens of thousands of miles from Jerusalem to Africa, Europe, and Asia. They planted churches, had heavenly encounters, worked miracles, wrote all-time bestsellers, were shipwrecked, flogged, imprisoned, and martyred, and yet they broke the chains and turned empires and kingdoms upside down. This book takes you on a journey of discovery back to the first century, experiencing how, against all odds, these embattled and triumphant ambassadors in chains so perfectly fulfilled Jesus' great commission. You can find the biographies of Jesus' apostles online wherever books are sold or on my website, www.thebiblehistoryguy.com. On the Bible History Guy website, click New Books, and then the first link takes you to the book in the Kindle version on Amazon, and the second link takes you to the paperback version online. You've been listening to the Bible History Guy radio broadcast, sponsored by Winterwood Creative. You can reach me, Jim Mosley, directly through my email, jim at thebiblehistoryguy.com. That's jim at thebiblehistoryguy.com.